Hey y'all, this is Jessica. And this is Amy. And this is our first official 1096 Crime Chicks episode. Yay! Yes, so excited. It's taken us a while to get up and running. But we are here, and we are here to tell you the story today of Carla Faye Tucker. I'm very excited. This was one that I really wanted to do. Yes, this was Amy, and she actually did all the investigating on this and then gave me the information and I learned a few new things too so it was really neat for me as well um, so it was a pretty notorious case and uh, and she herself was pretty notorious so some of y'all may have heard of her but uh, today we're gonna tell you the story of Carla Faye Tucker and the murder of two innocent people and her conviction and execution and how that all came about to be so with that being said we're gonna go ahead and start well we have a quick warning first oh, yeah it can get graphic um so just be prepared we didn't want to leave anything out of the story because it wouldn't do the story justice yes so, so make sure uh there's no little kids around and uh there's a little bit of language but it's mainly due to quotes that we found and uh and it is pretty gruesome so i'll let you tell the gruesome parts yay <laughs> <laughs> anyways all right guys so here we go all right, um, Carla Faye Tucker, she was born in November of 59 in Houston. She was the youngest of three sisters, and her father, Larry, was a longshoreman on the Gulf of Mexico. You know what that is? Mm-mm. No, I don't longshoreman. Mm-mm. We're going to Google that later. Yes. Carla stated, quote, as a little girl, I remember that we were a family. We lived in a middle-class neighborhood and went to the Bay House where we water skied and fished. But that period didn't last very long. My parents fought a lot and divorced each other several times. Several times. So that means more than once. Yes. Okay. I wonder how many times you can get divorced. I know you can only get married like seven times in the state of Texas. But really? Mm-hmm. Huh. I thought that's what it was. So, she started to get on drugs at the age of seven or eight thanks to her sisters. She caught them smoking pot Threatened to tell her parents, but since they gave her drugs, they said, well, now you can't go and tell on us. Um, by the time she was 10, her parents had divorced, finally. Again. Yes. <laughs> and by the age of 12, she had turned to drugs and sex. Um, during her adolescence, she did not have a normal childhood, and... She said, quote, back then there was a lot of drugs and sex. My sisters ran around with older people. One of their friends was in a biker club. He came to see my sisters, and when he found out they weren't there, he took me off on his motorcycle. He asked if I wanted to shoot some heroin. I think he was going to molest me, but he shot me so full of heroin that I got sick, and he wasn't able to do anything. He ended up dropping me off at some apartments, and that was the beginning of me shooting dope. Like, she didn't stand a chance with that guy. Either she was going to get raped or pumped full of drugs. Exactly. Terrible to be that young and have that happen to you. By the time Carla was in seventh grade, she was heavily into drugs and dropped out of school. She said she got kicked out as much as she quit. Her parents divorced that last time. She chose to live with her mother. Her mother was a rock groupie and a prostitute, and Carla traveled with them. They traveled along with the Allman Brothers, the Marshall Tucker Band, and even the Eagles. I do like the Eagles. I do too. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think I know any Marshall Tucker songs. I've heard. I, I know the Allman Brothers, but yeah. Yeah, I do like the Eagles. At 16, she briefly married a man by the name of Stephen Griffith uh, in her early 20s. She began hanging out with bikers, and that is when she met a woman named Sean Dean and her husband, Jerry Dean. They then introduced her to a man by the name of Danny Garrett back in 1981. 
By the time June 13, 1983 rolled around, Carla had uh, lived a very hard life, and any image she had as a innocent schoolgirl was completely gone. Uh, innocence had slowly evaporated in Carla Faye's case, and it had been devoured painfully by the world that chewed her up halfway before she learned to bite back. She didn't stand a chance. No. So she later described herself um, as being peer pressured. Um, She made a lot of last minute decisions. And she actually told Larry King that on the night of June 13th, 1983, her actions were crazy violent. Um, A party had been enforced for three days in the small brick house in Houston. It was for Carla Faye Tucker's sister, um, Carrie Ann. They had a bunch of drugs, um, pills. They had cocaine, I believe. A lot of drugs, a lot of booze. Um, They had the dessert tray of different kinds of pills, including Dilaudid and Valium. Um, And she said, quote, on top of all this, I had been doing a considerable amount of coke and bathtub speed. Bathtub speed. I'm curious, is it like made in the bathtub or do you do it when you're in the bathtub? I've never heard that quote, bathtub speed. Maybe all the above? Maybe. Maybe (laughs) a little bit of both. She also said, I didn't usually do speed much. Heroin and downers was my preference because I am a very hyper person and doing speed always skitzed me out. It made me go crazy. That night we were cooking speed and we started shooting it because it was there and I loved a needle in my arm. What one would call a needle freak. I'm terrified of needles. Yeah. I couldn't do it if somebody paid me. I mean, really? Like, I couldn't. I don't do needles. That's why I don't do tattoos. Oh, but those are little needles. Like, you can't see those. It still hurts. It's a different when they put a needle in you and then, like, inject you with something versus, like, using those little bitty needles to give you a tattoo. Don't listen to her, y'all. It still hurts. <laughs> uh, much of the talk of the party centered around a recent breakup. Sean and Jerry Lynn Dean had separated. Sean uh, attended the party, but when she showed up, she had a busted nose and lip. She had left her husband, Jerry Dean, a week before after he had physically abused her for what turned out to be the last time. And because Sean was Carla Faye's best friend, that evening was spent threatening to drive to Jerry's apartment to beat him up. Carla said, I saw what he had done to Sean. I was really mad. I was really protective of her. Although I thought, yeah, I'll get even with him. My idea of getting even with him meant confronting him, standing toe-to-toe. That really sounds crazy to me because they described her as petite. Yeah. I mean, I would assume he's not petite. No. But you know, when people do drugs, they think they're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. So true. And she probably thought that she could just take him on. As the party progressed, the bitter feelings raged and the pills added more animosity and excitement to the night. While most of the people at the party were enjoying the haze, Carla Faye, Danny, Sean, and another friend, Jimmy Lee Brandt, retreated to the kitchen, decided they were going to just basically talk shit about Dean and the wife Peter he was. <laughs> there you go. And I think they just uh, infused each other's anger the more they talked about it. Absolutely. So they kept talking about it. They decided they wanted to get revenge. But once her sister Carrie and her friend Ronnie joined into the conversation, they just started to change their dialogue. It all became just idle threats. Danny had to leave the party mid-evening to go to work. He was a bartender at a gin mill. She drove him to work, told him she would pick him up at 2 a.m. when they closed. After dropping off Danny, Carla Faye returned to find Sean more down than before. Um, she had gotten more and more depressed over her husband. She had tequila, and she was telling anybody that would listen about how much she loved him, but he, you know, 
treated her like crap. So she finally fell asleep with Ronnie falling asleep beside her. Carrie, Carla's sister, soon announced that she needed to go make some money. Uh, she was a prostitute. She knew the corner of the part of town where she could have a few pickups. Waiting on Danny to finish work, Carla Faye and Lee Brandt resumed their loathing of Jerry Lynn Dean. So they're waiting for Danny to get off work and they're just sitting there hyping each other up, talking about how much they hate this Jerry Dean guy right. for what he did to Sean. Carla never really liked Dean in the first place. A few months before when she had first met him at her apartments in Houston, her friend Sean had brought him over and he parked his motorcycle in her living room to keep it safe because apparently it wasn't a very safe neighborhood. So when Carla Faye walked in and saw this motorcycle in her living room, she instantly had distaste for this man who put a motorcycle in her living room. I know. I mean, I guess like anybody would. Like, if you brought a motorcycle in my house the first time I ever met you, even if it was the 10th time I met you, I probably still wouldn't like you much. You want to say you want to keep it safe, but you wouldn't be safe in my house. Exactly. (laughs) And so, uh, instantly... Jerry Dean and Carla Faye had this relationship where they just did not like each other. But for the sake of Sean, you know, being the friend and the girlfriend, they tried to get along. And she, Carla eventually made him leave her house and take his motorcycle with him, I assume. Yep. So she talked about different times that she quote unquote locked horns with him. Quote, one time he was sitting in his car outside and I punched him in the eye just for being there. <laughs> yeah. So Sean was told by him that she couldn't visit Carla anymore but you know Carla was one of her best friends and so she would still come around but would keep it secret from from him so but he did find a picture of Carla and her mother and he loved to stab at it with a butcher knife such a nice fellow right <laughs> so just before 2 a.m. Carla and Jimmy Liebrandt they went to go get Danny at work It was super hot, and of course, in Houston, it was super humid. Oh, yeah. So, they talked about the different things that they wanted to do because it was hot, but, you know. It was a drugs talking, huh? Yeah, totally. (laughs) Carla and Jimmy were so messed up on drugs that Carla wanted to, quote-unquote, jump into the water down by the apartment complex, and Jimmy wanted to drag his body on the road. Why would you want to do that? Like, just, I'm yeah. so messed up. I'm going to give myself road rash <laughs> <laughs> and just scoot across the road. Uh, but the, she kept her clothes on and, and he kept his body together and they uh, ended up not doing those things. So Danny decided he had an idea and he said, let's go to Jerry Dean's and steal his bike. You know, we obviously know how much he loves his bike enough obviously. to put it in somebody's living room. So that was kind of their plan. They all three decided, you know what, we're just going to go over to his place and steal his bike because he beat up Sean and we don't like him. So that was how this all originally started was just they were supposed to go steal the bike. And Carla Faye knew where his apartment was because apparently she had been there before and it was on the ground floor and it was in a pretty dumpy place from what she said. Uh, so the kind of neighborhood where the cops did not prefer to cruise around if they didn't have to. She said he would probably be asleep by now because he was obviously known to smoke marijuana so that he could sleep and relax. And so they all anticipated him to be fast asleep when they went to go steal his bike. All right. So when they got home, Sean was awake again, but she was super drowsy. She did admit that he would probably be asleep when they got to the house. She wished them luck. They all changed into black clothing. Danny got a 38 from the glove compartment, put it in his boot. Carla Faye later said that it was for protection, not to actual actually use. 
Right. They didn't have any intention of killing Jerry, but they just wanted to go and get back at him. She said, quote, we might not even get to take the damn thing tonight if there are any people roaming around outside the halls or something. We have to case the joint first. At least we'll get a fairly good look to see how easy the bike will be to steal. So I think they were anticipating that the bike was going to be in the apartment already. Right. And so that's what they were doing. They were in the halls. It makes me feel like it's like a motel. Yeah. You know, like the hallways. Yeah. It has to be enclosed. You got to think he's got to park his bike in there some way. (laughs) Right. So Carla Faye and Danny left Jimmy outside to keep an eye out. They went to Jerry's apartment. Danny wiggled the doorknob and it came right open. So the door opened. They went inside. They could smell the gas, leather, and metal. (laughs) Of a bike. In a living room. In a living room. I just can't get it. That part just baffles me that people would actually put there. But you know what kills me is he lives obviously in a very rough part of town. Right. So much so that he has to keep his motorcycle inside of his house. Mm -hmm. But his door's unlocked. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, you're doing it wrong, buddy. Yeah. You're going to do it right. Totally. So, Danny took in a flashlight with him. And so, he started beaming it straight ahead inside the living room and immediately saw the handlebars of the motorcycle. He could even see the tangerine light where it said Harley Davidson on there. So it was actually partially disassembled. Apparently he'd had some issues with it and had been taking it apart. So there were actually pieces of a motorcycle in the living room versus the entire motorcycle, um, which Carla Faye noticed too, but she thought, well, you know what? We can actually just take pieces of this bike and it would still piss him off because and he won't have like yeah. a tire or handlebars or something and right you know so that was their intention was they were just going to steal some pieces of the bike since it was disassembled but you know they were a little disappointed they couldn't take the whole thing but you know all right we'll do what we can and you know he obviously took pride in it and uh, they just wanted to take from him since he decided to beat up sean so after they found the pieces of the motorcycle a square of light came from Jerry's bedroom. Yeah, that's kind of scary. So she, you know, kind of gasped and they heard Jerry Dean yell, who the hell is out there? She didn't know what to do. She was like one foot towards the door, but at the same time she wanted to fight him. So Danny decided, well, this is our chance. He grabbed a hammer. He ran into Dean's bedroom and he beat him with the hammer. She loved it in fact she said that it was almost orgasmic watching him beat up yes jerry d with the hammer yeah she said quote sean's whelps still black and blue and already he's got a tramp in his bed damn bitch i'll kill her ah so there was a woman in the bedroom too yes i'm sure that infuriated miss carla Faye since she was so protective of her friend right reaching back into the living room carla Faye grabbed the first thing that she saw which was actually a pickaxe was three foot long with an easy grip. Carla Faye lifted the pickaxe and started running towards the room. She could already smell the blood from Danny. She paused for a minute to see what the girl was doing and following her curious movements, she circled the bed and raised the axe over her head. Now for the first time, it was Danny's turn to watch her kill this girl with this pickaxe, tearing the blade through the torso of the covering female. So this woman's hiding under the blankets, you know, because Jerry's getting beat with a hammer and not even knowing it, a pickaxe is coming straight at her. Right. That Carla Faye had found into the living room. So she knew that Dean was pretty much done for. She even said that his skull was flattened. So Danny just stood there and watched as Carla Faye started attacking this woman 
whose name happened to be Deborah Thornton, underneath the covers. Deborah Thornton then screamed and began to gurgle, and the gurgling annoyed Carla Faye, so she kept giving it to her again and again, in the chest, the legs, the stomach, and the shoulders. The more the body seemed to quiver, the more Carla Faye stuck to it. At one point during the attack, Danny threw a blanket over Carla Faye's head and told her to keep hitting her like a pinata. So blindfolded, she kept swinging the axe and hitting this woman, Deborah Thornton, anywhere that it could possibly fall. It ended up turning into what she called as ecstasy. Although she denied it later, she would tell friends the excitement generated a triple orgasm, like of something she has never experienced before. That's crazy. Yeah. That's like, crazy. No, that that's not what you do for that to happen. No. <laughs> you don't have to go to those links, but... Carla Faye finished Thornton, and she was so excited from finishing Miss Thornton that she finished off Dean with 20 more blows. Oh, wow. As if he wasn't already dead. Right. And before they left, Danny left the pickaxe in Debbie Thornton's heart. The next day, they were extremely excited. They had had said that a bastard and a bitch had gone to hell, and their dispatchers didn't run and saw no need to hide. What does that actually mean? The dispatchers didn't run? And saw no need to hide. Why are they calling them dispatchers? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of offended. Me too. <laughs> In a taped interview with Larry King, Carla Faye shunned the details of the murder, but she did say, quote, I not only didn't walk around with any guilt, I was proud of thinking I had finally measured up to the big boys. I didn't care about anybody. I didn't place any value on myself or anybody else. That's so sad. You know, I wonder what it was in her life and in her childhood that made her feel like, you know, she wanted to go toe-to-toe with men. She wanted to beat this man up. She wanted to feel like she'd made it with the big boys. Like, what was it that always obviously made her feel so little that she needed to, she needed to do something like this to make herself feel big? Right. You know? So, the landlord found the bodies of Jerry Dean and Deborah Thornton, and he called the cops, and they very quickly realized that it was Carla Faye and Danny that had done the murders, and they talked to Jimmy. He said he hadn't been involved. He waited outside what was for a supposed burglary. Yes, of the motorcycle. Right. I genuinely think that they were going there just to take the motorcycle. Yeah. I think if he had not have woken up, I don't think they would have killed him. I think, I think they were just so pumped full of drugs yeah. that it was like... And it's so much so that obviously Danny had a thirty eight in his boot and did right. not even think to use it. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. So he had a gun with him because, you know, remember the neighborhood was yeah. so bad, they had to have a gun, but he still grabbed a hammer and she grabbed a pickaxe when he could have bent down in his boot and grabbed a gun and chopped. Yeah. So, I don't know. Uh, throughout the days of the trial, Lee Brandt turned state's evidence so that he could walk free. Carla Faye and Danny were indicted for the murders back in September of 1983. Uh, they were tried separately. In Carla Faye's trial, the state vowed to try it to its fullest extent despite her gender and that they had not executed a woman since the, what was it, Civil War? I believe so. Yeah. So, court TV online records quoted Carla Faye entered a plea of not guilty and was tried before a jury in the 180th Judicial Court System of Paris County. Judge Patricia Lycos presiding. Jury selection commenced, and then the trial was April 11th, with closing arguments April 19th. A verdict of guilty of the offense of capital murder was returned on the same day. Garrett was also found guilty, and Carla Fay were both sentenced to death. Um, it had been a set of speedy trials. Both parties' defenses were unable to overcome the profusion of witnesses against their clients and the sickening violence of their crimes. They obviously bragged to a lot of people right. about what they had done. They had a lot of testifying to that, I guess. Garrett ended up dying in prison not long after his conviction of liver disease. Part of me thinks that's not even fair. No. But then the other part of me thinks he got off easy. Yeah. But Carla Faye, she went through many, many appeals, um, even 
talking to the governor of Texas. Nobody would hear her. They rejected all of her clemency requests. She ended up spending 14 years on death row and was executed February 3rd of 1998. 14 years. That's a quick execution. Yeah, very quick. After her sentence, Carla Faye was removed from Houston and taken to the Mountain View unit in Gatesville, which is in Central Texas. Um, I may have driven through there once or twice. No, really? <laughs> so she had a roommate, Pam Perillo, and she had 10 other neighbors that were on death row, lethal injection being their fate. Yes. They were not allowed to mix with the general population. And she was only able to look out of her very small window. She could see the wind and the rain, and that was about it. Her hopes for, for release were pretty unrealistic. She knew that she wasn't going to be able to escape the death sentence, even though she tried to fight it, saying that there, her crime was not premeditated, premeditation being a requisite for capital punishment in Texas. When she spoke to Larry King two weeks before she died, she suggested that bad advice from her lawyers is what nudged her into the no-hop predicament. She quoted, I did not plead guilty at the beginning of my trial, but only because my attorneys had said not to. If I had that to do again, I would. She had already confessed to the trial, and up to that point, she had already admitted to it, so there's really nothing to fight for. You said yeah. you did it, you did it, they give you the death sentence, and then you try to appeal it, well, you confessed to what you did. So, right. Although there was no premeditation, and that's where I think her biggest fight was, was for the fact that they had not gone there with intentions to kill Jerry Dean right. and Deborah Thornton. They had just went there to steal the bike. So I think that was like her one bit of hope that she was trying to hold on to was not premeditated, so convert by death sentence to life. Right. You know? um, early in 1984, Carla Faye's lawyers were denied by Judge Lycos for uh, a retrial, and further appeals were overruled. Early attempts in 1984 by Carla Faye's lawyer for a retrial were denied by Judge Lycos. Anything else that... They tried to appeal, fell onto deaf ears in 1987 and 1988. And on June 25th, 1989, the Supreme Court ultimately turned down her motion for appeal. Yes. So, um, part of the reason why I wanted to do this, we're going to start talking about, um, just because she's such a different person. Mm -hmm. So, And that's um, what really made her famous, right? Yeah. Was because so many people were advocating to not put her to death because of who she had become, right? Right. Awesome. So, despite all of the convictions being made to stand, um, her whole case became very controversial. She said that she wanted to die, but she had also found religion. Most of the people thought, you know how criminals are, they go to jail, they quote unquote find religion, mm -hmm. and you know, how many of them is that like true? Right. You know, Texas, a state known for its firm ground, Texas. A state known for its firm stance on capital punishment didn't waver. Again, they said the last time a female was executed was in the Civil War. According to Court TV Online, quote, Applicant Tucker repeatedly sought an evidentiary hearing in the trial court to address the issues raised in her earlier petitions, arguing that the affidavits submitted by trial counsel were wholly insufficient. In February of 92, Judge Lycos rejected the request for a new hearing, and she set a tentative date for execution for June the 30th. A month later, two new lawyers came to Carla's defense. Court TV said that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ordered that an evidentiary hearing be conducted, at which time the applicant will have an opportunity 
to prove allegations 10 through 12 of the amended petition. The allegations cited that Jimmy Liebrandt, who had been with Garrett and Tucker the night of the murder and who walked away free, had committed perjury on the stand. Although the order directed Judge Lycos to hold an evidentiary hearing only on the perjury claims, three judges of the Court of Criminal Appeals were of the view that an evidentiary hearing should also be conducted on the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. So basically they're saying that Liebrandt lied. And that she had crappy lawyers. Yeah. On July 6th and 7th, the partial evidentiary hearing was held before Judge Lycos, who made it clear that the hearing was limited solely to the evidentiary matters relating to Mr. Liebrandt. On November 19th, 1992, filed supplemental findings of the facts and conclusions of law and order, which was submitted to the Court of Appeals. This report addressed all the claims contained in applicants' pleadings, even though a hearing was held only on the claims relating to James Liebrandt. Uh, in the meantime, even though a response from the appellate court had not yet been returned, Judge Lycos again ordered an execution date for Carla Faye Tucker. So basically, Judge Lycos was not having any of it. Oh, yeah. She was like, she was I like, don't care that you're appealing things. This is your execution date. She said, bye, Felicia. <laughs> yeah, she did. <laughs> oh, man. So it took many months for the answers to come from the court criminal's appeal, and uh, it was not good news for Carla Faye. They would not alter the initial verdict after all, and... They lifted her stay of execution. So, regardless, she was going to be executed. With the clock winding down, Carla Faye Tucker's lawyers utilized what little they had left for a reprieve, doubtlessly hoping that some public sentiment might aid their cause to commute her sentence to life. They appealed once again to the Texas. They appealed once again to the Texas appellate and the district courts in Houston to challenge the constitutionality of the state's clemency procedure in a 155-page court document. Tucker's lawyers repeatedly stressed that she was fully rehabilitated and posed no future threat to society. Attached to this petition were sizable documents supporting those during the years of her incarceration. She had become a socially safe and faith-conscious citizen. Do you believe it? I don't know. I mean, when you have that much time to yourself. I can see where you would repent and maybe find religion, but would I trust that person? No. Yeah. Not in a prison, not outside of a prison. Right. You know, I mean, you can be changed all you want, but I'm not going to trust you. Right. Um, included in this package uh, were testimonies from various professionals and laypersons who had been around Carla Faye Tucker. They offered their opinions on her readjustments to normalcy and her religious conversion, as well as her present character. Some of these witnesses were a psychiatrist, a drug abuse expert, and a deputy sheriff, as well as a prison chaplain. Some doubted that she knew what she was doing the night of the murder because of the drugs. I can kind of see that. Yep. But others claimed that her formative years led her to head into a crash course of some kind that could not have been avoided. Which I can see that, too. Yeah. Right. Right. She didn't stand a chance. Right. I mean, to have some kind of tragedy in her life with the way that her childhood was. Right. Underscoring this message, she was now a God-fearing human being, um, a model prisoner, and she herself wrote a letter to Governor George Bush asking for clemency. The letter exerted says, quote, I am in no way attempting to minimize the brutality of my crime. It obviously was very, very horrible, and I do take full responsibility for what happened. I also know that justice and law demand my life for the two innocent lives I brutally murdered that night. If my execution is the only thing, the final thing, that can fulfill the demand for restitution of justice, then I accept that. 
I will pay the price for what I did in any way our law demands it. It was three months after I had been locked up when ministry came to the jail and I went to the service, that night accepting Jesus into my heart. When I did this, the full and overwhelming weight and reality of what I had done hit me. I began crying that night for the first time in many years, and to this day, tears are part of my life. Fourteen years ago, I was part of the problem. Now I am part of the solution. I have promised to do right for the past 14 years, not because I am in prison, but because my God demands this of me. I know right from wrong, and I must do right. I don't really understand the guidelines for communication of death sentences, but I can promise you this. If you commute my sentence to life, I will continue for the rest of my life in this earth to reach out to others to make a positive difference in their lives. I see people in here in the prison where I am who are here for horrible crimes. I can reach out to these girls and try to help them change before they walk out of this place and hurt someone else. I am seeking you to commute my sentence and allow me to pay society back by helping others. I can't bring back the lives I took, but I can, if I'm allowed, help save lives. That is the only restitution I can give. Yeah. I mean, she sounds genuine. Yeah. But then again, you're looking at a convicted murderer who killed two people with a pickaxe. Yeah. Which is really personal and really brutal versus pulling a trigger. I mean, right. Anybody can pull a trigger and kill somebody, you know. And But to grab and stab somebody, that's that's harsh. Yeah. So I can see how they look at her in a different light. Because sure. of, of how she did her killings. I mean, it was awful. Uh, the parole board was unmoved. Governor Bush was unmoved. And on January 28, 1998, the court denied clemency for Carla Faye Tucker. Her execution was scheduled for February 3rd. Evangelist and author Linda Strom often visited Carla Faye and went and saw her several times at Mountain View on Death Row. She recently published a book called Carla Faye Tucker Set Free. And it relates to the inmates' ongoing conversion to religion and attests that Carla Faye did fully repent for her crime. Uh, according to Strum, Carla Fay had found what she called the power of forgiveness and when still in Harris County Jail in Houston awaiting her sentencing. A minister had visited the jail and Carla Fay, attending services took a Bible back to her cell more for reading material than a gesture of her faith. But over the next few days reading the holy book for the first time she began to realize a strength she never thought she had. By that time she arrived on death row she had become a spiritual lift to the other prisoners who were there. Uh, they found her a beat and a light in the dark. Strum writes quote not only did Carly see people, she listened to them with her head and her heart. Her words, both her spoken ones and written ones, packed a wall up and were always encouraging. In 1995, Carla Faye married Dana Lane Brown. He was part of a prison ministry group. Because she was on death row, she wasn't allowed to be a part of any kind of ceremony. So it was videotaped and he was in Waco, Texas. Waco? Where's Waco? I don't know. Neither. Chip and JoJo. Ask them. Yes. The event drew media attention because, of course, she's on death row. Oh, yeah. She had already been the subject of much print from women's rights activists and politicians, both for and against the issue of the death penalty. She was visited by different celebrities, one being ex-Miss America and broadcaster Terry Mewson and author of Dead Men Walking Catholic nun Sister Helen Prejean? 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 We have to Google that. Google that. Yeah. Prejean. It was a good movie, though. It's one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. Um, Newt Gingrich championed her cause, and so did evangelist Pat Robertson. Robertson tried for five years to remove her from death row. Of course, 
That didn't work. Nope. At a press conference hosted by the Christian Broadcasting Network, he said, quote, I am one who supported the death penalty for hardened criminals, but I do think that any justice system that is worthy of the name must have room for mercy in the case of Carla Faye Tucker. She's not the same person who committed those heinous act murders. She is totally transformed, and I think to execute her is more an act of vengeance than it is appropriate justice. So she had a lot of people rooting for her, basically. Yeah. Yeah, trying to get her death sentence commuted to life. So. Right. A frequent and surprising visitor that would visit Carla Faye at Mountain View was Ron Carlson, the brother of Carla Faye Tucker's female victim, Deborah Thornton. At first a rabid crusader for her death, Carlson, like Tucker, found religion and absolution. Now, we're going to be talking about him again yes. and Deborah Thornton in our next episode. Uh, I think they tie together. So that will not be the last time you hear those names. So remember them, Deborah Thornton. And her brother, Ron Carlson. You're going to hear them again in my story next week. Yay. So, his story is highlighted in a 1999 video uh, called The Power of Forgiveness. He basically found religion and forgave Carla Faye Tucker for murdering his sister. Um, it made him sick to know what they did to his sister, he recalls. Quote, it made me so sick to know what they had done to my sister, Carlson recalls his feelings the day after the killings. The bodies were mutilated, some 25 and 30 puncture wounds. My sister was in the wrong place at the wrong time, which ultimately, that's that's how I felt about her. She oh, yeah. was in the wrong place at the wrong time. She picked up the wrong guy at the bar. Like, yes, she did. That's why you don't do that, people. Don't go home with strangers. He remembers months of wishing day and night that he could, you know, have his opportunity to kill Carla Faye with an axe himself because of what she'd done to his sister. But he knew that he had to do something with all the hatred and anger that he was having. With that, it was consuming. So he found faith and started reading the bible and he learned that if he wanted to be forgiven for his sins that he needed to forgive her so he ultimately forgave carla Faye and became a regular and visited her and became friends isn't that crazy that is very crazy if you get a chance watch the video again it's called the power of forgiveness and it'll show you a little bit more about his journey of forgiving carla Faye tucker now deborah thornton's husband who was named Richard, was not so forgiving. And on the day that Carla Faye was executed, he was outside with several people holding up signs saying, have a nice day, Carla Faye. He was not going to forgive her for what he did to his wife. Not at all. No. Richard, to a cluster of reporters, said, quote, this is the day Carla Faye Tucker will die. This is Deborah Thornton's day. What goes around comes around. He's not better. Not at all. And of her religious conversion... He said, quote, If every one of you were to get transcripts of the 1984 trial and compare it to what Carla Faye Tucker says today, you'd have no problem. Understand that that woman is lying. So, late on the afternoon of February 3rd, 1998, Governor George Bush closed the door on the last breath of hope for Carla Faye. He denied a 30-day delay for the execution. The governor's mansion sent out a press release saying, quote, Many people have contacted my office about this execution. I respect their strong convictions, but Carla Faye Tucker has acknowledged she is guilty of a horrible crime. She was convicted and sentenced by a jury of her peers. The role of the state is to enforce our laws. The courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, have reviewed the legal issues in this case and therefore will not grant a 30-day stay. May God bless Carla Faye Tucker and may God bless her victims and their families. Carla Faye Tucker died an hour later. So, that's kind of sad. Well, yeah. It is sad. Um, But, you know, if she made her peace, then, you know, she had heaven to look forward to, I guess. Yeah. 
So. Here's something that I thought was kind of cool. What's that? She got to ride in a plane from Gatesville <laughs> to Huntsville. That's pretty a cool. A very short plane <laughs> ride. She chatted briefly with reporters, and CNN News termed her upbeat. Her last meal was a banana, a peach, and a salad. Mm-mm. You better load have, that stuff I up. I would have had so much food. <laughs> with, with her were her husband, Dana Brown, and a few family members and friends, visibly comforting her as the appointed time of her execution, which was at 6.30. Ron Carlson was also there to visit her. Dressed in the white uniform of Mountain View, she decided that she did not want to wear the orange work suit usually worn by condemned prisoners. She still had a sense of style. Even though she didn't have a sense of what to eat. No. (laughs) (laughs) I just want a banana, a peach, and a salad, but I'm not wearing that orange outfit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Relaying her to her death would be lethal injection, a quick blend of acting barbiturate that would be fed through intravenously. Texas adopted this form of punishment in 1977. It is one of 27 states that employ it. Other states still use the electric chair, gas, rope, or firing squad. The electric chair. Yes. What? They still use that, don't they? I think some states do. I think so. I want to say Florida, but I may be wrong. God, and they have a lot of homicides in Florida. I know. They probably have a lot That's of That's what got it. Throw, Ted Bundy was the electric chair. Oh. <laughs> oh, Ted. When she was asked what her thoughts were as she was being strapped down to the gurney, she quoted, I'm certainly going to be thinking about what it's like in heaven. Huntsville received the news that Governor Bush rejected her stay of execution at 525. She was given some time to pray and say goodbye to her family and friends. Then she was led down to the death chamber, which looks like a, according to them, looks like a sterile room, like in a doctor's office, but it has the one-way window so that... They can see in, but she cannot see out. Right. So, that evening, while her loved ones peered in sorrowfully from the waiting area, opposed on the other side, there was the victim's families that had absolutely no pity. In a few moments, she would be bound with leather restraining straps and addressed reflective windows, knowing that beyond their glare, waited and watched those with tears and those without. So, Carla's last words were, I would like to say to all of you, the Thornton family and Jerry Dean's family, that I am so sorry. I hope God will give you peace with this. She then whispered a farewell to her husband and thanked the warden for his kindness to her in the last hours. I mean, I cannot think of many prisoners that would thank the warden for their kindness. Yeah, but I've read... Did you ever go online and read, like, the last words and the yes. last meals of death row inmates? That's, like, my favorite. They do thank the warden a lot. I, I've read several where they've thanked the warden. Hmm. And I'm sure I've seen it in movies, too, where they think the warden, but I'm like, why are you thanking this man? Like, he's walking you to your death. Exactly. So, I don't know. When she was uttering her final goodbyes, they were attaching the IVs to her, and an AP reporter said, quote, when she was finished, Miss Tucker closed her eyes, licked her lips, and appeared to say a silent prayer. She coughed twice, groaned softly, and went silent as the drugs took effect. And then she passed away. I hope painlessly. That's, I mean, I hope it's not painful. Yeah. I think it would probably, I think the beginning of it would probably put you so out that you wouldn't even know. I don't know. I mean, I've had many surgeries to know that they give you some really strong stuff. 
They give you the good stuff. Yes. And then they just <laughs> knock you out. Exactly. <laughs> so, wow. So, that is our story on Miss Carla Faye Tucker. And although lots of people truly believe that she had changed her ways and became a Christian and found God, um, you know, it still just wasn't enough for them to convert her sentence from death to life. And so, ultimately, she paid the same price that her victims did. So. Yeah. Obviously, you know, some of those family members forgave her and some of them were not so forgiving. So, um, it's, it's kind of a vicious cycle, you know, nobody really wins here. Yeah. So nobody really wins. So next week we will be doing the story, um, that is going to have Deborah Thornton and Ron Carlson in it again. Uh, but you're going to have to come back and listen next week to find out what that story is going to be all about. Because I'm really excited about it. Me too. It's a really good one. And it's not one that we've heard any podcasters do. So no. um, it's going to be a little different. Uh, but it'll be new and it will tie into uh, Carla Faye just a little bit with the, with the same people involved. So anyways, thanks again for listening, guys. And hope to have you guys listen to us next week for episode two. Yep. Be sure to find us on Facebook and Twitter. And obviously, Podbean and iTunes. Yes. And if you have any suggestions, uh, be sure to send them our way. Thanks, guys. Bye.